This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, I'm Dan from AJ Bell and Shares Magazine, and with me is Tom from AJ Bell. Hello. So this week's podcast looks at what Joe Biden's agenda means for investors as he is inaugurated as the new president of the United States. We also chat about some of the week's biggest news on the markets, including Netflix latest numbers and signs of renewed interest in cruise ship operators. That's right. I'll also be answering another listener's question on managing their retirement savings, and we'll explain why there is some royal news in the world of pensions. Very exciting. Later on, we've also got fund manager Matthew Tillett from Brunner Investment Trust, who will be talking about value versus growth and opportunities he sees in the market. But first up, Dan, tell us what's been happening in the world of stocks and shares over the past seven days. Well, we had Netflix figures out for its fourth quarter. Um, So it beat expectations for revenue and missed expectations for earnings. But the shares responded very positively to the update um, because there's some key things in there. Principally, it was that subscriber numbers are still growing very fast. Uh, It's now got more than 200 million paid subscribers. And the company says it expects to break even this year and be cash flow positive after that. So essentially what that means is it's no longer going to have to go to the markets and and raise debt to fund its big spending spree on television shows and films. So it's also hinted it might do some share buybacks as well. So really, I think it's a bit of a turning point here. So people have criticised Netflix for a long time for spending so much money uh, and, and sort of ballooning with debt. So if you can get all that under control um, and just be self-sustaining, quite interesting turning point for the business. But you know, we had Disney the other day talking about how it's going to be making some really, really big name films and TV mm-hmm. series. Um, so there's a, a huge competition in the streaming area. So I don't you know, Tom, what you must have be subscribed to every single streaming platform going. Um, oh, what's, what, what's your favourite? So I'm I'm subscribed to uh, Sky Cinema if that if that counts um, in terms of competition with films. I've got Netflix and I've got Amazon Prime. That's my that's my lot. I was tempted by um, Disney because I think am, am I right in thinking that they've got the entire Simpsons back catalogue? Yeah, so you can get yeah. all that. So, yeah, yeah, so, so that, that, that almost tempted me in, but I haven't I haven't quite taken the plunge yet. <laughs> so there's plenty, you know, this is it. So the people saying that um, you know, we're in a sort of a, a bit of a fragile economic backdrop, um, particularly for people who perhaps have lost their jobs or being furloughed. Do they really want to be spending money on so many different platforms? Will we see a point where people start to become more selective? But I think at the moment, everyone's sort of quite curious just to try them out for a little bit. Um, but elsewhere in the news and the markets, Shares in TUI have risen by nearly 40% this year already in just a matter of weeks. And Saga's up 15%. And both those companies are tied into the cruise industry. So I was thinking, trying to get my head around, why are these sort of moving when some of the other holiday companies aren't? I think it's principally down to um, the age of which people are getting the vaccination. So in the UK, 
people in the 80s, quite widespread now, will have had vaccinations, and now they're doing it into the 70s. So this is prime cruise um, sort of target market. So I'm wondering whether people had their vaccinations and now saying, okay, I feel comfortable now. I'm going to go and start booking up holidays again. So we haven't had any numbers out uh, from either of those companies. But the fact the share prices are starting to move up would suggest investors are sort of uh, taking the view that they might be turning a corner in terms of um, demand after very, very fragile 2020. Uh, we've also had JD Weatherspoons coming back for another round of cash. So it's asked shareholders for some more money. It's raised £94 million. So if you think, go back to last year, I think it was last April, the company raised £141 million. It was one of many companies to to go to shareholders and say, look, we're going through a tough time. Uh, We could do some extra money to keep us going um, so we don't have to worry about um, you know, struggling with all these uh, you know big debts or, or anything like that, just because we know that this is a short term issue, we'll come out of it. And and generally, shareholders have been very supportive. So the same things happened again. Um, shareholders have backed it, and and the company said, well, we're going to use this money to strengthen our our balance sheet, um, give it enough liquidity to deal with very low sales once society does start to reopen, because I think it might be a bit of a slow burner in terms of. Getting people back into the pubs again, uh, but interestingly, it's also talking about um, an opportunity to buy new pubs at quite good prices. It's considering acquisitions of several in central London, where it's already the tenant. Now, there's a guy called Rooney Anand who used to be the chief executive of Green King, so it was a rival pub company. So Rooney Anand has just come out and said. Uh, he's raised two hundred million pounds to invest in the British pubs industry. So he's betting on prospects of a post-pandemic recovery. Now it's quite interesting because I, I thought running Green King, you would have cast your eye on pubs uh, across the country looking for any opportunities. And he was boss for a very long time. So. I think it's quite interesting. You know, it's very, very um, sort of knowledgeable character in the pubs industry. Um, seeing now is the time to move. So I wonder if we're going to start to see some some interesting things happening in the leisure sector in the coming weeks and months. Definitely one to to keep your eye out for. So now onto the segment of the podcast where we like to answer listeners' questions about pensions. So Fred, you're the lucky one that we've picked out the hat this week. Uh, Fred retired. Two years ago from the NHS age 60, his current annual NHS pension is about £36,000 after tax. So this is indexed and is enough to cover a comfortable lifestyle. Now, he's also got a SIP account as well. So that's a self-invested personal pension. He's already taken the 25% tax-free cash and is the pot is now worth £90,000. It's invested in five different shares and diversified across different sectors so he said he doesn't need to to draw down on this sip at present but it's one and he doesn't doesn't want to buy an annuity but wants to know what's his options given that the workplace pension effectively pays for his lifestyle um and and i guess this sip is a bit more freedom so tom where does what what are his options now yeah really interesting question and i think there'll be there'll be quite a lot of people who have this this combination so people who've built up generous defined benefit or sometimes called final salary pensions throughout their career, perhaps by working in the NHS, as Fred has done, or working for a private company, which where, where defined benefit pensions used to be 
more common and then having a sip alongside it as well. So you've got a combination of both guaranteed in, in, guaranteed income and potentially flexible income to combine with it. So it could be ideal for lots of people. Now, in, in Fred's case, he's already taken the 25% tax-free cash from his SIP. So I'm going to assume that he's crystallized his fund into drawdown. So when I say crystallized, all I mean is that he's picked a retirement income route. So you could pick drawdown, or you could you could secure an annuity, and you need to do that in order to access your tax-free cash. So I'm going to assume that that's what Fred has done. Given he's done that, he's got two income options for his SIP money. So he can keep the money invested through drawdown and take an income as he wants to, or he can buy an annuity paying a guaranteed income for life. Or I should say as well, he can combine the two. So you could buy a bit of annuity and keep a bit of flexibility. But Fred said he doesn't want to buy an annuity. So let's just focus on the drawdown option. Now, most people, when they're moving into drawdown, the main thing they need to consider is how long their fund is going to last for and making sure their fund lasts for as long as they do. Now, that can be different for different people depending on their financial circumstances. If you consider Fred's financial circumstances, he's got a really significant guaranteed pension income, which might mean that actually he doesn't need to make that SIP last as long as he does because he's got other income to look to look after. And so he might want to draw it faster or he might want to take a bit more risk, risk with it or he might have other priorities for it. And we'll, we'll come on to those in a in a little bit. But if, if, if Fred was thinking about taking an income from his SIP and he wanted to make sure it lasted as long as he did, then as a very rough guide, and this is just a rough guide, it's something we've talked about before on the podcast. So for a for a healthy 65-year-old, if you're withdrawing at a rate of higher than 3 to 4% of the initial value of your fund over the course of your life, adjusted each year in line with inflation, then if you're withdrawing more than that 3 or 4%, then there's a risk that your money will run out before you do. Now, that needs to be caveated by the fact that that will depend on lots of factors like your health and your underlying investment performance. But as a starting point, if you're taking more than 3 to 4% of your initial fund value each year, then there's a decent chance that you're going to run out of money in retirement, as I say, depending on how your fund performs. Now, in Fred's case, tax is also going to be an important consideration, depending on whether or not he wants to take an income from it from his fund or he wants to take a big chunk of it or indeed take it all out of his fund as one lump sum. So if he did do that, so if he did decide to take the full lot out as one lump sum, then he'd have to pay income tax on the remaining funds. So he's already taken his 25% tax-free cash. And so if he did take it all out at once, then he might push himself into the higher rate tax band. He might even push himself up towards the additional rate tax band, depending on what other taxable income he's got coming in. And so he could avoid some of that tax by staggering his withdrawals over time to make sure he doesn't push himself into those higher tax bands. Um, One thing to note when you access taxable income from your pension in this way is that you'll trigger what's known as the money purchase annual allowance. Again, something we talked about a few times on the podcast. That means that the amount that you can pay each year into, into a pension will fall from a maximum of £40,000 to just £4,000 a year. So if Fred was thinking about making more contributions into his pension, then he should think about the impact the money purchase annual allowance will have on his ability to do that. And just one final point, I think is probably particularly relevant to uh, to Fred. So 
when making decisions about accessing your SIP, you might not just want to think about getting the money yourself or providing yourself an income, but for lots of people, a priority is going to be passing money on to loved ones when they die. Um, and SIPs are really tax efficient for this now. So any money you don't withdraw from a SIP can be passed on to your nominated beneficiaries, potentially tax-free. So if you die before age 75, then that money we pass and that, that money that's left over will be passed on to your nominated beneficiaries tax-free. If you die after 75, it'll be taxed in the same way as income. So in that way, pensions aren't just about providing an income in retirement anymore. They're actually uh, a very tax-efficient way of passing money on to loved ones when you're no longer around. So I think anyone listening to this podcast, mm. if you're in a situation, if you've got questions about your pension, do drop us a line. It's podcast at ajbell.co.uk. Um, we can look at sort of situations quite broadly. What we can't do is to tell you what investments to make. So anyone thinking, um, you know, what funds or stocks should I have in my uh, inside my retirement pot we can't tell you that that's that's not what we're here for but otherwise if you wanted to understand how pensions works and but situations we'd love to hear from you so yeah do drop us a line so actually tom while we're on the subject of pensions i did notice you were messaging me earlier on this morning about something important with the word royal in the subject line i was just wondering is, is prince charles launching some green pension scheme or did i actually um sort of not read your message uh, <laughs> yeah, Prince, Prince Charles's spider pensions. No, no, that's not what's happening. So the very exciting day for me. So the, the pension schemes bill. So this is the government's agenda for um, for pensions has has passed the final stage that it needs to pass um, in the House of Lords. It's gone through what's known as ping pong, where any Im- amendments to the bill can be put forward by um, by the Lords. And so it's now, as we speak, is on the verge of receiving royal assent. So that just means that it's going to get the Queen's signature on it. I don't think the Queen's going to have any objections to any of the measures in it. So I think the the, the Pension Schemes Bill is going to become an act. And what that means is it's, it, 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 sets, it sets out the government's agenda, all the things that the government's prioritizing for the next few years. So I'll take you through a few of the a few of the more interesting bits in it. So um, Guy Opperman said that the, the new measures in the Pension Schemes Act will make Brits' pensions safer, better and greener. So that's a classic politician's list of three. But let's look at some of the details of, the, of those things. So um, protections for defined benefit scheme members. Now, this is something that's been in the in the works for a while and is is linked to the story. It feels like a long time ago now, Dan, but when, do you remember when the story around BHS and Sir Philip Green and the pension scheme was the biggest news story going on, certainly in pensions, and I think was covering a few a few front pages. Um, so the, yeah. the government's keen to make sure that situations like that don't happen again. So it's handed the pensions regulator, which um, is in in charge of regulating defined benefit pensions a load of new enforcement powers including the ability to fine individuals up to one million pounds if they knowingly neglect their responsibilities to define benefit scheme members so it's very much uh, in response to what happened not only at bhs but other pension schemes as well where the company it was felt that companies didn't pay enough attention to the pension scheme didn't put enough money in and as a result, um, members ended up losing out on some, not all of their pensions because they're, com- they're, they're covered by the Pension Protection Fund, but ended up losing out on some of their pensions. We, 
We've also, and it's worth it's worth noting, all of this stuff is kind of is quite high level. So the government says it wants to do these things, but a lot of the detail will actually come in what's known as secondary legislation. So the government will say we want to introduce uh, powers to punish people who neglect DB schemes, but actually a lot of the a lot of the stuff and the nitty gritty is going to come further down the line when we get the regulations and things like that. So the 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 act also um, legislates for the creation of pensions dashboards, something that we've talked about before on the podcast. So this is the idea that eventually, once these dashboards are up and running, you'll be able to see all of your retirement pots in one place online. So that's deemed necessary because people tend to have lots of jobs now, around eleven jobs throughout their working lives, and with automatic enrolment, it's possible possible that each one of these jobs will create another pension scheme, and people tend to lose track of pension schemes because, frankly, they're too busy living life and doing what they want to do, although maybe that's not the case during lockdown when there isn't quite so much to do. Um, So dashboards are expected to become a reality in 2023, so don't expect anything anytime soon. And as I say, we're still waiting on lots of the details over how they're going to be introduced, but potentially a positive development for people who who have lost track of their pensions in the past and want to be able to find them. I'll just pick out one more, and I'd say the, one of the more interesting bits from the from the Pension Schemes Bill, the Pension Schemes Act, as it will become, um, is around climate change reporting. Now, it's it's not often I I get to mention Sir David Attenborough and Love Actually Director Richard Curtis in uh, my sections on pensions on this podcast, so I felt like I had to take that opportunity. So, interestingly, um, they, they're part of this growing movement, and there are a lot of a lot of celebrities getting involved. Um, in this movement to 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 put pressure on pension schemes to take issues of environment environmental social and social governance more seriously and in particular to take the issue of climate change more seriously and the the reason that they're focused on pensions is quite simple it's because pensions have huge scale and if that scale can be um, marshaled then they could potentially change the incentives for companies who clearly want all that investment investment money and so could also potentially change the way uh, the way that those companies allocate their resources and have a genuine impact on the battle against climate change so coming back to the pension schemes act what what it's done is um, it's only a small measure so far so it's a a new emphasis on schemes um, to consider the climate change impact of their investments on behalf of members. And we're looking really at automatic enrolment pensions here and perhaps defined benefit pensions as well. Um, and they're also going to have to publish more information for members on how this has been achieved. But I think this is one to keep an eye on as we as we move through 2021 and, and beyond. I think when you start to get celebrities and you know the general put there's there's been a lot of of over a a number of years certainly as long as i've been in the industry the idea of esg becoming the next big thing has been talked about but it's never really caught on it perhaps in the way that people expected but i think when you're getting the likes of sir david attenborough and richard curtis and others out there pushing for this sort of thing in the public domain then you're starting to realize that it is becoming mainstream and i think increasingly we'll see pressure coming um from individual consumers and from members to to see the information on how their money's been invested and to potentially put pressure on people to invest in it a way that's better for for the planet and for all of our lives. Thanks for that Tom, really good. 
So the US is now celebrating a new president. Some people maybe aren't celebrating, I'm not sure, as Donald Trump has finally packed his bags and Joe Biden has laid out his new stationery in the White House. Although I wonder if they provide stationery for him. I'm not sure. (laughs) Um, Anyway, that's not the important thing. Dan, what does this new era of US politics mean for investors? I think it's... it's very important, this change. Uh, the markets have already kind of priced in quite a few things. But I thought I'm just going to briefly go through some of the key things on his agenda and try and sort of put it in the context of how they might sort of influence markets going forward. So definitely the first thing that Biden is going to to look at is trying to push through this $1.9 trillion stimulus package. Um so that includes giving checks of $1,400 to, to many Americans. So mm. the idea is that potentially they can go and spend this and then this, this would help the economy. Um, certainly that might help consumer-facing stocks. Um, but there is a sort of suggestion that people might actually put this money into the markets because there's been a lot of interest um, from the previous stimulus checks about how much of that might have been gone on to – uh, people buying shares while the stock market is doing so well. Um, so, I mean, it's it, it definitely an area to look at. But uh, there's also the flip side is that people actually might not do anything. They're worried about jobs. They might just mm. sit on that cash as um, support. So in which case, that's not going to help the economy at all. But um, obviously part of the stimulus package as well is to um, to get you know, spending in other areas which could – um, help support uh, kind of what's going on now. So infrastructure is obviously a big area um, that people have been looking at very closely. And we've already seen shares in, in many sort of construction companies um, rising ahead of this likely um, expenditure going on. So that's definitely one thing we'd be looking at near term, but then sort of perhaps sort of medium term stuff on his agenda would include the threat of greater regulation of the technology sector. Cause it, there's, this has been going on for a while. The concerns about big tech companies being too dominant and um, just not letting smaller companies uh, be able to compete on a, on sort of a fair basis. So, at the moment, the stock market doesn't seem overly worried about it. Uh, but I guess there's lots of people who either have been buying into the tech story uh, through individual shares in recent years because it's been the strongest part of the market for a long time. Or they might own sort of global shares that might own these tech stocks. It's mm. definitely worth keeping an eye out. And, and believe me, this will be uh, front page news when we get um, any sort of developments on it. On the healthcare side of things, so Joe Biden has plans to make medical care much more affordable. So he's hoping to lower drug prices. So that would introducing a bill that would essentially penalise pharmaceutical companies for any price hikes that are higher than inflation. So I think what um, sort of many sort of market experts are sort of saying from this that large cap sort of drug companies um, might find life a bit harder on the stock market, um, but actually sort of potentially. Um, much more stronger areas for for growth and therefore potentially if earnings are growing um, therefore that might drive share prices would be uh, in areas like tools and diagnostic firms and hospitals and and sort of care companies on trade relations obviously donald trump had a terrible relationship with china so there's automatically people assuming anyone has got to be better uh, in terms of relations between the us and china than the previous president but um 
Joe Biden isn't expected to be a complete pushover here. I think he's he certainly is, will will be up for, for fairer conversations. But um, yeah, it's not it's not going to be an easy thing. But I, I think at the moment markets are pricing in there to be a better global trade scenario. So you're already seeing this with um, commodity prices going up, emerging markets uh, doing very well as well. Um, but I think you know China is is always a bit of an unknown. Um, it's very unpredictable about exactly what might happen, but um, I, d- I think a softer stance is overall uh, a more favourable relations is, is the message to get, and generally that should be quite good for um, you know, say for, for particularly for commodity companies, and also there's, there's expectations for inflation as well as that's driving up commodity prices at the moment. Yeah. So on taxes, um, we've got plans to push up corporation tax from 21 to 28%. And there's also another sort of 15% tax proposed on companies earning $100 million or more on, on financial income before tax. So it's kind of aimed at tech companies who might have found ways to get away with paying not much tax in the past. So really here, so saying, so corporation tax going up means corporate profits will be squeezed. So that's a, a negative impact on earnings. Theoretically, that should be negative for share prices. But uh, again, the market doesn't seem overly troubled about this at the moment. Um, And then finally, we've got the green agenda. So Joe Biden's very, very in favor of renewable energy. Um, You should expect the US to sign back up to the the, the Paris Climate Accord. and we've already seen stocks like Next Era Energy have seen big, big gains ahead of Biden coming into power. So the big question is, have you already missed the boat? Certainly, you know, there's, a, there's the Invesco Solar ETF, which is a tracker fund um, following the performance of, sort of solar-related stocks. That was up more than 200% last year. So I mean, that, you shouldn't really expect a continuation of um, such stellar gains for that. But I think He's so strong in trying to make changes about renewable energy and sort of the, the sort of the broader green um, theme. Uh, I think there'll still be a lot of attention paid, particularly in the sort of the first six months of his um, him coming into power. Uh, definitely, definitely close area to watch. But really, you know, overall, I think you know markets have been waiting for this moment for a long time. Um, we've got change now. Um, generally, you know, markets have been in a very good mood about it. Um, obviously, when we get drilled down into the details of each of these agendas a bit more, who knows? It might not be such a, an easy ride. But um, you know, so far, so good for for, for markets. Great. That, well, that that taught me a huge amount about what's going on in the US. I feel far more informed than I did before. So thank you very much for that, Dan. Um, last but not least, it's time for our guest interview featuring a fund manager from a well-known investment trust here to talk about a wealth of topics, including the reasons why he's put money into house, house builder Redrow and banking group UBS. So today on the podcast, I'm joined by Matthew Tillett, who is the lead portfolio manager at Brunner Investment Trust. Um, so thanks ever so much, Matthew, for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks for having me on, Dan. Hey, welcome. So um, value stocks have been rallying since about November. So that's sort of leading some investors to question if they need to completely change their portfolio, perhaps selling the quality growth stocks that have served them well for years in favour of sort of lower rated ones, which are these so-called value stocks. So I'm just wondering if you think it's a question of you've got to pick value or growth um, 
or rather, or, or is this sort of wake up call? Actually, you do need different styles at all times in your portfolio because you shouldn't really try and time the market, see what's in favour or not. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a it's a great question, and I think you know there there are obviously different ways of approaching this. I, I the way we approach it um, is you know the the the, the latter um, as you described it, which is to you know to really try to have more of a balanced um, approach. Um, so we you know we look across uh, you know the whole the whole world, and we look across all sectors, uh, and we're quite open minded um, about you know where you know where where we invest. Um, but we are very focused on on the long term uh, and trying to understand uh, what are the key long term drivers, both from a structural uh, kind of secular level, you know, industry um, uh, sort of economy wide themes, you know, things like you know, digitalization and demographics, etc. Um, and then also understanding, you know, cut the companies' positions um, within the industries that they're in. Um, and we're, we're always very focused on on finding quality business models. Uh, that we think can um, you know, are resilient and sustainable in the long term, um, and and we also like them to have uh, you know to have some growth. Um, we're not you know c- completely sort of growth obsessed, um, but we do think you know companies that can grow over the long term generally perform better. Um, I think in terms of your specific question, uh, I think there there clearly has been some really wild swings uh, if you look at the last year. Uh, and and really, kind of the, the extent of the, the the swings between you know value and growth and, and certain sectors, uh, you know, the first half of the year and then and then the, the final quarter after the vaccine, the extent of the swings, in my view, were probably not really justified by the news flow. I think they probably were more indicative of just how extreme. The, you know the the market had be, had become the you know, positioning within the market uh, become so extreme um, in 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 the shorter term, uh, and for us that's that really creates opportunities. Um, so we 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 uh, for example you know in in the you know the sort of beginning of the pandemic period. Um, you know, sort of Q2, Q3 last year, you know, that we were looking quite hard at that time at some of the cyclical um, areas of the market, including some of our own holdings and trying to work out, you know, which companies, which businesses, which industries were likely to recover quite quickly. And, and, and you know, once the pandemic has passed, would would still have strong fundamentals and get back to where they were and be able to kind of grow from there. And in contrast, you know, which ones, you know, maybe might struggle to get back. Uh, so, for example, you know, we, we, we actually, you know, we, we, we had some companies that are exposed to business travel. And that's an area that we're, you know, we are quite cautious on now long term. So we took the opportunity to, to you know, reduce or sell out of those companies. Um, but there were other areas, um, for example, the housing market, uh, where, you know, we were actually quite confident that the, the, the long term fundamentals um, in, in that industry, um, you know, particularly here in the UK and in the US, are actually quite strong. Um, and so, so for us, it was a sort of opportunity to kind of look um, to look in that area, find some very very attractive valuations um, to you know to, to you know to um, you know to make good long term investments. Um, so that's that's how we think about it. You know, the, the the big wild swings that you see, I say, as kind of a much, I think, of just a kind of response to market positioning as to any. Uh, any anything else, and we we try to keep focused on the long term and and, and use those swings as an opportunity. Yeah, so I guess it, I mean, it, this is the the big question for investors: is is this value rally sustainable? And I think we, we've seen so many times in the past value bounces back, but 
it doesn't last very long. Actually, it doesn't yeah. tend to last more than a few weeks, but we're now into, you know, perhaps month three of it. So um, I think there's lots of people saying like rising inflation would actually favour sort of cheap cyclical stocks like commodity producers. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm wondering if there's if there's enough signs to suggest actually, you know, if you pick the right stocks, value still is the place to be for, for quite a while yet would you would you agree well, i mean the big the big difference um that we face that the, the situation now compared to if you go back 10 years ago um coming out of the financial crisis um the big difference today is that we seem to have the combination of uh you very supportive monetary policy which we have had admittedly for the last 10 years but we also looks like fiscal policy is going to be very supportive as well um we've seen that during the pandemic um, but there's not much sign that, you know, austerity is is on the agenda politically. It's just not really an option um, uh, yeah, in, in Western economies. Uh, so it's, you're, you're likely to have that that kind of continued support for quite some time. And you're right, you know, that does, you know, potentially benefit some of those sectors that you mentioned in the ways that maybe it hasn't over the last 10 years. Um, you know, on the other hand, uh, you know, we have to keep in mind that, you know, there are kind of the, some of the structural issues that have been in place for a long time, um, you know, are impacting um, certainly some of the quote unquote, um, you know, value sectors, you know, whether it's kind of the banking industry or, you know, the telecom sector. So I think, you know, in some ways for long-term investors like us, you know, we've still got to, we, we've got to still be looking at the same things we've been looking at for the last 10 years, which is, you know, really try to find, you know, quality companies that can, you know, that, that can can sustain their their profitability and grow, um, uh, but you know, and, and be care- and be be careful when you're looking in those value sectors. But you know, but we don't we 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 certainly don't dismiss you know all of those all of those sectors because there are interesting companies in there, and, and you know, we we do have some you know, some holdings in the portfolio that have helped us out. You know, in, in the certainly in the the Q Q four and the start of this year. So what I saw you've got Red Row, the house builder in your portfolio. I mean, one could argue that's quite cheap compared to some of its peers. I was just having a look before we started this recording. It's trading on a price to book ratio 1.1, but actually something like Persimmon is, is trading on two and a half times its value of its assets. So, I mean, I guess Red Row is an obvious value stock. I mean, has that been one of the sort of the ones that have given you a bit of support recently? Yeah, we so we 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 um, started buying Retro last year. We were a little bit early, um, to be fair, but we were buy, we bought it kind of at much lower prices as well. Added added to it, partly because of some of the you know analysis and work we were doing, as I talked about earlier, thinking about you know industries that were likely to recover relatively quickly, and certainly in a UK context, um, you know the housing market in the UK. Uh, you know, we think that does have um, quite supportive fundamentals. Um, you know, you've got. Uh, you know, relatively undersupplied market, um, quite strong um, structural demands. Um, the other big difference um, is that you don't have, um, compared to, to ten years ago, the financial crisis. Is we, we this this crisis is not a banking or even a housing crisis. We, we didn't go into it with you know huge leverage in the banking system and huge you know kind of you know inflated. Um, balance sheets uh, across the sector, and the house builders themselves, Redrow included, have been running their businesses pretty conservatively for several years. You know, very strong balance sheets. Um, you know, you know, pretty kind of sensible, cautious approach to their markets. The industry itself uh, is is quite an attractive industry. You know, you've got you've got kind of six, seven big listed players. Uh, it's pretty oligopolistic. 
Um, it's quite hard actually to enter the industry um, in, in any in any major scale um, because you need quite a lot of capital. You need access to the large sites and you need to be able to navigate the planning system. Uh, and it, you've got to be, it's only really the big companies that can do that. And then once you've done that, you can then generate um, pretty high returns on capital across the cycle, which, which Redro has done. If you look at it, if you look at the history up to the year before the pandemic, you know, it, it delivered, you know, five year growth in revenue and earnings of you know, almost 100%, uh, even better over 10 years. And even if you look at it from the previous peak uh, before the financial crisis to, to, um, to today, it's still, it's, it's still, um, you know, delivered nice growth. Um, so we, we think the sector as a whole is is quite it, it has attractive characteristics from a quality uh, and growth perspective. Redro is particularly interesting because it's still small enough compared to some of the peers like Persimmon that you mentioned. That um, you know, in in what is a relatively mature industry, uh, it has the ability to actually grow the foot its, its footprint. Um, so we think over the next kind of five years, uh, five plus years, you know, it, this company should be able to expand its footprint. Uh, by opening new sites, new outlets with the land bank that it's got, um, and because it makes uh, you know, you know pretty attractive returns on capital, that will drive um, quite a lot of value creation for us. And as you say, we're we're getting all that at a pretty attractive valuation as well. Um, so it's a it's a very good example of why cheap, you know, cheap or value quote unquote does not necessarily equal you know, you know, bad or low growth. You know, it can do. You know, sometimes you know, a low valuation indicates a problem, but not always. And this is a good example, a good example of that. I mean, another sector that's under sort of the, the value heading is banks. And I know certainly some of the UK banking stocks haven't actually participated in this sort of um, the big sort of rally in value stuff since November to the same level as um, many other ones. But, uh, you know, you've got UBS, which is sort of a, an overseas listed yeah, uh, banking portfolio. What I mean, this is a real marmite sector. What 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 was your thinking behind adding that stock to your portfolio? Well, in the back, so I mean, banks have, have obviously struggled for a long time, and, and one of the main reasons is simply just the the the, the continued decline in interest rates that we've seen over ten years, which just makes it very hard for for um for you know traditional banks to make to make much money. Um, a UBS is an interesting one um, because it, it's it's seen very much as a bank. Um, it trades like a bank in the stock market. It's valued pretty much like a bank, um, and part of its business is an investment bank. So you know, about a third or so of its of its um, capital employed is is uh, in the investment bank. And the investment bank, you know, does the returns on equity that that business makes um, is lower than it needs to be. It's it's it's, it's under the cost of capital. Um, totally accept that. But what's interesting about it, and this is kind of, I guess, sort of what what we look for, why why we think it's interesting, is because it's the other parts of the business um, that are actually uh, really quite interesting. So. It, this company is actually the global leader in wealth management. Um, so their wealth management, global wealth management business has, uh, you know, I mean, it's kind of sort of two two point seven trillion, I think, of um, of, of, of AUM. It's absolutely enormous, um, uh, and that's an area that we structurally uh, we, we like that. Yeah, you know, we have quite a lot of other holdings in the portfolio. Um, companies like you know St James's Place. Um, AIA um, in, in Hong Kong that, that are, are also exposed to this trend. You know, we think there's there's strong demographic drivers behind financial services and financial advice, uh, wealth management, 
um, it's a it's a much more attractive industry from a returns perspective because uh, it's it's more capital light. Return on equity is you know that can be sort of twenty thirty percent or more. Um, and we think over time, you know, that business is going to come to sort of um, you know uh, account for much more of uh, UBS's um, profits, uh, and in time should be you know should be reflected more in the valuation. Um, so that's 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 sort of the reason why we own it. We don't actually have much exposure to the kind of traditional banks, um, you know, as as uh, as most people would would think of them. We're kind of looking for for a, a, you know another angle, um, and that's the sort of that's a, you know that's the you know a good a good example of you know how you can have a company that's you know kind of priced quite lowly because of you know one particular part of the business, but actually you know the majority of the the business is actually in a much more attractive area that's um you know that's performing pretty well yeah and just just one sort of final question that you say you don't really follow a specific investment style but actually you know, brunner investment trust does have a sort of a, a value opportunity because it shares a trading at a 17 percent discount to its net asset value so effectively someone can buy a basket of stocks which include really popular names like Microsoft and Visa for well below their market value. But why do you think that, you know, Brunner at the moment is trading on such a big discount? Yeah. And it's, it's an important, I I would like to just emphasize that, although we've talked here about, you know, a couple of quote unquote value stocks, the core of our portfolio is, you know, we we have a lot of um, well-known, really strongly performing companies, you know, the Microsofts, the Visas, the TSMCs of the world that, you know, we think are, you know, they are growing very strongly and we're confident that those trends are in place. And it's just that we don't, we're not exclusively focused on that that area. We also think more broadly. Um, in terms of the, you know, the discount, yeah, I mean, we we think it's a great, great opportunity. Uh, this is a, this is a, um, you know, a trust that's got a very long history. Uh, it's done very, very well over the long term, delivered consistent, um, you know, growth, capital growth and income. Um you know, we we think we're we describe ourselves as a one stop shop. Um, uh, essentially, we're a trust that is is suitable for investors who who really just want something that does the job. Um, you know, delivers a consistent performance in in capital and income terms. Um, and yeah, you know, say it's predominantly invested in in highly liquid shares as well. Um, so there's no real sort of you know. Sometimes when you see these big discounts on investment trusts, it's because you know the underlying holdings are. Are you know a bit esoteric or liquid? Um, now that's that's not the case here. Um, so yeah, I think I think it's a it's a it's a great opportunity for um, uh, you know any any investors kind of really looking for to you know to to invest uh, you know over the long term um, uh, because you know, as you say you're you're getting the portfolio um, at a at a you know really quite an attractive discount. Well, brilliant! Thank you ever so much, Matthew, for joining us on the podcast. It's really fascinating to hear what you had to say. Okay, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Great. Right. That's everything from us this week. Thanks very much for listening. And thank you, Fred, for your question. We hope you've enjoyed the podcast. And if you have, please do share it with anyone else you think will be interested and leave a review of the show if you have time. See you next time. Thanks very much for listening. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes. And the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. 
If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.